Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Mark Schuler. He's an associate professor in the anthropology department and at the Center for NGO Leadership and Development at Northern Illinois University. He's also an affiliate at the Faculté d'Ethnologie at l'Université d'État d'Eti. The book we're going to be talking about today is Humanitarian Aftershocks in Haiti, just published by Rutledge University Press. As many of you know, on January 12, 2010, an earthquake hit Haiti very hard, leading to the devastation of thousands of lives, as well as thousands of homes. It also led to an outpouring of relief money and efforts, well-intended, but by many accounts badly handled and often making things worse. The book takes us into one of the most fraught outcomes of the earthquake, which are the camps for thousands of people who lost their homes. Schuller's ethnography begins on the ground in the camps and exposes the making of fragility and vulnerability amidst do-gooders, NGOs, and local politics. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. So I want to just jump into this book. This is not your first book about Haiti. Could we talk a little bit about how you became interested in the place and I guess in particular the problem of humanitarianism? Mm-hmm. So I was a campus activist with Amnesty International in the 1990s during the coup against Aristide, and a campaign about Haiti came across the desk. Um, And I was also a member of a movement to fight racism in from Chicago, which was founded by a Haitian. Um, And so all these signs pointed to an interest in Haiti. Uh, So I didn't know that... uh, the founder of Dusable, uh, the founder of Chicago, is Haitian until I was a graduate student and I was taking a class in world history with the, the French, the Cuban, the Russian, the Mexican, the Spanish, the Chinese Revolution, but not the Haitian Revolution. So the systematic way in which the United States ripped Haiti from our collective memory and were beneficiaries of the uh, Manifest Destiny through the Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase when France lost and was losing Haiti. So um, that just sort of got me hooked on Haiti. Why humanitarian aid? So I was, um, after graduating from college, I was a community organizer for four years in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And to make a long story short, um, I was told not to organize to save a homeless shelter from being demolished because the, the, the group that wanted to demolish it was the funder for our hotline. So my boss told me, no, don't work on this. This this fund this funder uh, as a for profit corporation they left the city and they took their donor profile with them and so they demolished the housing they didn't build their new office that they were going to they moved to another state and so regardless the people were kicked out and um, we lost the money for a hotline anyway so the question became to me um, what is the impact of funding on and government on on non-governmental organizations or NGOs. So humanitarian aid in particular became more important after the earthquake. Uh, I had to do a lot of catch-up after that because uh, the, the, my dissertation, my first book, was about 
women's organizations, women's NGOs, and development funding. They're, they're related, but they're, you know, there's some important differences. Yeah, and I, I hear what you say about the absence of the Haitian Revolution when we were in grad school, because I had this very same experience. And it's very interesting, because I think that now there's a whole generation that's responded that, and there's a lot of stuff coming out about the Haitian Revolution. So mm-hmm. um, your book is really part of that. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, the argument of your book, I think, is in the title, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by humanitarian aftershock. What is that? What is that term? Well, great question. So um, we were, um, we were, so, so lots of folks were experiencing the earthquake. First of all, people in Haiti don't use the word earthquake to describe um, the situation. They, They call it the event where they made up an onomatopoeia, gudu gudu, to talk about it, because they did not actually say the word tremblemante, uh, or earthquake. Mm. Um, and most people in Haiti experience the earthquake as just the first in a chain of disastrous events. So people refer to the word disaster. They talk about um, what scholars call vulnerability. And they reuse the word, so that the January 12th, the earthquake date, was the conjunctural crisis. It wasn't the structural crisis. So people have that language in Haiti already uh, that maps onto Western, quote-unquote, social science scholarship on disasters. But most people that I talked to who were living in, uh, certainly all that were living in the camps, experienced um, the crisis as, you know, the earthquake was the trigger, but they they were, there was a second aftershock of the humanitarian aid. So I was in Haiti eight days after the earthquake. Uh, it was one of the second flights that the the, the U.S. military allowed, private uh, flights allowed to land. Um, and what I saw, in addition to being, you know, horrified by the damage, was a really beautiful solidarity. Um, so I was in Haiti during the coup in 2004, the second coup against Aristide, and the, the countries, the divisions that ripped apart the country in 2004 were suspended. So Lavalas and the Convergence, and it, 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 Aristide in his, in his uh, uh, opposition s- suspended their, their, you know, their, their animosity. Uh, rich and middle class and poor Haitians were all sleeping together next to one another on the street. Um, most significant was the, the, the religious difference. So Protestants and Voodooisans left their divisions aside because it was all about one Haiti. Uh, so in my neighborhood, I, I did collect some money for some medical. There was part of a medical team, but I'm not a medical anything. You know, I'm just an anthropologist. So I collected some money also. And so we had money to buy a water truck. And so the people in my neighborhood said, hold on, Mark, we can't buy the water truck until we know we can take it. So they had a meeting lasted, you know, a good 90 minutes. And they de- and so long story short, they had a list of 31 people having 85 um, vessels of water uh, and precisely what, who has what vessel of water. This is a pot. This person has a jug. This person has a cooking pot. This person has a, you know, a water bottle mm. and you know, they calculated, okay, so we're ready. <laughs> you know, that, that that level of organization and solidarity, I mean, it's not just solidarity. It's that's organization ability. That is amazing. So that, Haiti. So that there was a glimpse of another Haiti as possible. That, that, that Haiti was built on rebuilt on solidarity. It was rebuilt on 
you know, a, a spirit of unity, lot, one helping another. That was actually how Haitians survived. And Haitian people weren't given the credit for doing that work. And they weren't given the credit for being the people that were the first responders. Um, but that Haiti ended when the aid came. And the, the aid came when it, and it aid turned that solidarity into hierarchical top-down mini-me NGOs that are the camp committees, who are the conduits of aid and become all-powerful. And these are the committees that... Um, contributed to the problem of violence against women by transactional sex, for example. These are the, he said, all-powerful um, organizations that could give out two weeks' worth of rash, food rations uh, to women based on the, the gender guidelines. So um, that's why I'm calling it humanitarian aftershocks. And actually, I had called it another thing first. It, the, the title was actually clearer to me in Creole than it was in English. And it was, a, it was another... You know, gudu, uh, it was uh, secu, secus, you know, aid, secu, secus would be the, the, the aftershock. So it just became clearer to me, because I am translating this book into Creole, so that folks in Haiti can, can critique it, to use it, or whatever they want, you know, so it can be accessible. Um, and the title, secu, secus, just became clear to me, because uh, that's what I was hearing in, 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 in people's analysis. And so translate that back into English, I got humanitarian aftershocks. There's a title of a really great report, Gender Aftershocks, by um, a women's organization, Koto Femme Fi, uh, and Christine Dadeski. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of things that I want to ask you about uh, over the course of the interview that you just raised. But I think it's interesting the way that you describe the solidarity. And part of the solidarity, this really comes through in your book, is um, this act of thinking through the whole process, right? So if you're going to get water, you have to think about how whether people will be able to take water. And that's something that you don't see happening with a lot of the sort of humanitarian efforts. It's so interesting that that was one yeah. of your very first experiences, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I also, I want to ask you about the committees um, a little bit later, but I just, I also want to sort of talk to you about the, something that you raised in terms of who you're hoping is going to read this book because the book really reads as if there's a lot of urgency driving it. And we were chatting about this a little bit earlier and it's, it's the second book you've written about Haiti after the earthquake. And so I'm wondering if you see, it sounds like you see the book um, writing and publishing and especially translating it as part of a larger project of solidarity as the book sort of participates in that project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so who is it? So who is envisioned as the audience, and what a vision is why I'm doing this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, a book by itself can't do a whole lot. Um, and what the book? What what books can do if they're, you know, being pushed? I mean, so we had the book release on January 12th, the anniversary of the earthquake. I hope this would be ready for the fifth anniversary because the fifth anniversary was an occasion for. You know, a media event to say how where to, how have we gone how have we done uh, we being you know quote unquote the West um, or the North or you know foreign agencies. Um, so who I, I actually so I, I I sent this book to some colleagues who work in NGOs and one of them in particular said you're too nice to us <laughs> you don't have to apologize. You don't have to. You don't have to reaffirm our good intentions. We need to hear this. So 
um, I said, with all due respect, my first book, the title pissed people off. So they're, they're not going to read it. So some people are, don't like what I have to say just because they're, they're affronted by what I write in Huffington Post and now Twitter. Um, I'm just starting Twitter. In 140 characters, you can't get to too much nuance. But a book, you can tell a story. Uh, and so who have I envisioned as part of the, the – who am I telling the story with and who am I telling the story for? Um, I'm telling the story with people in Haiti. Uh, specific people in Haiti, people that live in the camps, people that are frontline NGO workers, people that are directors, country-level directors, people that are actually foreign humanitarians that came and wanted to seek me out. Who am I writing it for is all of the above, plus um, people that make decisions about where money goes, so donors, um, NGO directors, students who want a career in NGOs, People that want to make use of this experience as their, you know, their notch in their CV. I was going to say a different phrase, but they're, you know, the, the, the must-have. And if you have an experience in Haiti, your goal and in terms of humanitarian career. Um, Bill Clinton and the UN Special Envoy for for Haiti, um, and citizens who've contributed to the relief effort. Because you know, we, the United States. I don't know about Canada, but I do know that the United States, um, 60% of U.S. households contributed in some fashion to the relief effort, 80% of African-Americans. And so in a very real sense, we have a seat at the table that we're not even sitting in. And so I'm trying to hail those of us who felt compelled to donate to say, okay, this is what happened. Here's the lessons that Haitian people are learning. And, you know, uh, so for a document to document, one, you know, the, some of the more difficult questions and ones that can't be slogan, you know, translated into a quick Huffington Post blog or a slogan, yeah. you know. So concretely, the book, as you said, mentions or sorry, deals with uh, internally displaced persons or IDPs and the camps that many of them ended up living in after the earthquake. And you anchor each chapter, you, you open it with a narrative or a little excerpt from a statement by a Haitian person who either lives or lived in one of the camps. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the process of interviewing and writing. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So I worked with a team of people. So I've been teaching at the state university of Haiti since 2004. I've been an affiliate officially since 2003. I work with a team of, of Haitian students. Um, so uh, I will uh, so every, every every time I go back to Haiti, I teach a class, and I have students as research assistants. So a lot of the the, the camp level, all of the camp level interviews uh, were conducted by a Haitian student and or uh, a Haitian American student. Because I was I was teaching at the City University of New York at York College in Jamaica Queens, which is a large Haitian population. So I had I had five Haitian American some of whom still have their Haitian passport, um, students come join the students in, in Haiti. So they, they spent five weeks in the camps um, in 2011, a year, after, year and a half after the earthquake. Um, and they, spent, they went every day. Um, so they, they got to be a known presence. They got to see what really goes on. They got to see you know, the aid distributions, if there were any. They got to see happenings like the president happened to show up, President of Haiti happened to show up in one of the camps. Any kind of, you know, who are the people that are the first, you know, people that present themselves as, oh, I'm the leader here because of the first people that show up. But then, you know, you're there for five weeks. You get to see 
who really is. Um, and this person just kind of disappeared. Unfortunately, people did witness acts of violence and stuff, um, as well as having to confront the realities of living in this kind of subhuman conditions. And so the interviews feel uh, gripping to me. Uh, I would show up. The reason why I didn't do it myself, um, A, is the scale. I couldn't do this kind of work by myself. But B, as a foreigner, as a white person, as a tall, white American, U.S. American male the only context people had to interpret me in my presence there is as an aid worker. So when I would show up, literally within seconds, there'd be 30 to 40 people staring at me, talking to each other, saying, does he speak Creole? What does he, what does he want? Tell him this, tell him that. So my presence really was disruptive. Um, I did go back to all of these eight camps after the first period was done, and I, and I went and I visited each one of them until they closed. All but one of them closed, so there's only one camp remaining. You know, it's called a village. But I, w- I went to them nine times over the, over the, over the next three years. So I, I got a sense for these, these people and places as individuals. Um, so the writing of it, um, you know, I had all this stuff translated, you know, transcribed and then translated. So I just was trying to get a sense for, well, what are the themes that are emerging? And so um, the, I just... Uh, had to make sense of what I, what I found. And really, like going through the transcripts, some of those are really... I mean, chapter two, I cannot read anymore because um, it's talking about the day of the earthquake mm. and uh, the specific trauma that people had because they felt powerless to help. And that that is how I felt as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I wrote... So I, 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 I anchor every chapter with these long, longish... Um, transcripts of these interviews with individuals that kind of set the tone um, and then you know just kind of seeing I could have chosen a lot more but I just sort of said well let's 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 see what people in Haiti are, are saying you know so it's it I did quantitative research as well um, it's quicker and you can go you can identify you know patterns that uh, that you can't necessarily with uh, qualitative interviews but this I really felt honor bound to, to, you know, if I'm taking 10 minutes of someone's time, I'm going to do something real with it, you know, so, and people in Haiti are intelligent, they're, uh, they have a lot of experience, and they're the ones who saw what was happening, because it's their lives, and so this book, I felt the real compulsion to write that story, not, here's, you know, the, the journalistic story is, where did the money go, and that focuses the attention on the foreign aid worker, and this book, it does not do that, and that's intentional. Right. That makes sense. And um, so each chapter you ended up, as you said, putting uh, sort of different themes in different chapters. And I found a lot of them quite surprising. It was really an interesting read. And one of the ones that I found the most surprising, that, and I, you know, done some reading about what happened sort of after the earthquake, but the idea that the aid structures actually encouraged the breakup of families, right? So mm-hmm. that it was this idea of a kind of nuclear, a kind of standard nuclear family that would receive aid. And if that wasn't visible to aid workers, then, then the fam- families wouldn't get aid or they would get less aid mm-hmm. um, depending. I found, I found that really fascinating. And also just also what you write about the way that, that families just responded to that and broke up their households and sort of apportioned people in different ways. Mm-hmm. Was that surprising to you as well? Uh, on one level, yes. On one level, no. Um, I was 
to be completely honest, my first, so the HuffPost blogs were coming out um, thanks to Gina Uli's anthropologist, performance artist, Haitian-American phenomenon. Um, she recommended to the editors they were looking for other writers for Haiti. And so she said, there's this guy, Mark Schuler. He did this video. Look him up. And so um, so after the earthquake, I within the six, first six months, I wrote like, 15 pieces um, all of us were in that kind of very quick mode and you know as an activist as a solidarity activist I was you know really focusing on the role of the US government because I'm a US citizen um, and NGOs that get US funding so I, I was you know maybe a little bit in the, the, the kind of where did the money go gotcha kind of journalism Um so I was seeing very quickly, so I got pushed back. Uh, lots of folks did not like what I had to say in Huffington Post, and I heard a lot of it. I, I'm sure I only heard a part of it. Um, people called me naive. People called me destructive. People called me, you know, just go back to being a professor. Leave, leave the aid work to us. We know what we're doing. And don't you know that Haitian people are lying to us? Don't you know that Haitian people are cheating? Don't you know that Haitian people... Um, you know, we'll just do whatever for, for aid. And so, um, but the data was clear. Uh, you know, so like you, you could either, you could either look at it saying, well, uh, yeah, this is an example of how, blame the victim narrative, which is very, very, I mean, the racialized narrative, it's a gendered narrative since the U S I don't know how, uh, if it, there's a similar thing in Canada, but in the 1980s, with uh, President Reagan trying to undo a uh, social welfare state, there was a welfare queen, a black woman that was getting three checks, you know, cheating the system. And, you know, that, that whole, it's a very continuous, very racist, uh, very um, pervasive narrative about Haiti. Um, because obviously, the, you know, the, the, Anyone who went to Haiti would see that there wasn't there wasn't progress being made, and so the the first impulse is to blame Haitians, is blame the victim. It's a very easy thing to do. Haitian people don't speak English, they don't have blogs, they don't they don't have computers, they they don't speak. Uh, they're black and they're Haitian, you know, and so that, that that's an easy impulse. And I got a lot of criticism for being naive. Um, and then I was hearing from my Haitian colleagues, like, yeah, we're cheating the system, but look, that, that, I mean, not cheating the system. They would say, yeah, we're doing this, but, you know, you set the rules for the game, and we're going to follow them. We're, that's just being smart, you know. And then I was hearing from some of my colleagues that I've known for years, and like, yeah, this is a huge problem, because the aid, came, aid workers came in, and they, they redid our society in three years, what it took, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution two generations to do, you know, uh, in, in quote unquote, the West. Um, and so they were really concerned about Haitian, uh, scholars as well as Haitian NGO professionals. And so it wasn't just about cheating the system or being intelligent. It was saying, these are the rules of the game and these rules are totally inappropriate and imperialistic. So that part of it, I was, I was, I wasn't tracking on it, but then once I started to listen, you know, and, you know, slow down a little bit, I, I was able to hear what, what some of the deeper concerns that my colleagues in Haiti were having. So related to that uh, is the committees, the formation of the committees. Mm-hmm. And I found that chapter really fascinating. And you make a you make distinctions between the kinds of committees and how they're formed in particular. 
um, as essential to how they ultimately worked. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how you came to realize that that was so important. Uh, how did I? Well, uh, these committees became such an important piece of the aid delivery. Uh, They're extremely visible. Um, you can't go to a camp without some guy in their almost all guys um, showing up with a card that he made, um, you know, like a plastic, you know, they went, they, they went and plastified a photo and said, I'm in charge here. What do you want? You know, and it's, it's um, a lot of these people were um, nobodies before the earthquake, but because they spoke two or three words of English or Spanish, uh, they were able to be the conduit for the NGO aid. A lot of them were also church followers or pastors um, to a specific circuit of humanitarian assistance that went through the evangelical organizations. Some of them were even rumored to be gang members. I didn't pursue that part. It didn't seem to be relevant um, at the time. And it did seem to be a lot dangerous to be asking those kinds of questions. And so I didn't require any of my assistance to do that. Um, but you hear in whispers all kinds of rumors. And you know that when you're hearing a rumor, you, to take it with a grain of salt, but um, the fact that they're rumoring about it is telling you something as an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Um, but these committees were totally separate from the rest of the, the, the population. You know, my, my trick as an anthropologist is, like, I would just show up and unannounced, and, you know, these people say, oh, hold on, the committee person is not here, because they don't live in the camp. They have to drive, so that it takes them half an hour to get to the camp. It's like, oh yeah, you just came from your house, you know, you just you just showered. I can I can smell that you just took a shower. So you're obviously not showering here. And sometimes I actually would confront them on that. It's like, yeah, I don't live here. It's like, well, then how how on earth are you representing these people? You know, um, so but these camp committees were the saviors. They were the ones that you know you had to have a camp committee in order to get aid. So that chapter talks about, in real detail, the, the, the formation of these committees in these eight camps. And they, they're all different in terms of the, the story, but the rules were the same. If you want aid, you have to have one of these. But it, and, sounded, and, to yeah. me, it sounded to me like the committees that formed kind of more, if you want to say, more organically, right, that came out of the experience uh-huh. of the camps and people just started, started getting organized right away, those committees... Mm-hmm. You you seem to think that those were more effective than the ones that were formed by NGOs, by people who came in and said, you need a committee, can you please form one? Absolutely. Uh, I don't see that. Absolutely. Um, for lots of reasons. They had the organic you know, relationships with the population. Uh, they came from the area. They, they survived on their own. They did what they could with their own means to solve little problems. And they did. And they had the confidence of the population. They had the trust of the population. Um so absolutely, I think that. Um, I can document that, actually. Um, I could have been more specific about some of the results, but, um, yeah, I mean, seeing people... I mean, obviously, I wasn't there in, overnight to see their... to do the patrols, but I talked to people that did the patrols. They said, yeah, I'm just a, I'm just volunteering, you know. I, I, all I get is a meal, but I get the satisfaction to know that no one's going to come in, in this camp at night and steal anything, you know? Um, and what do you think about the camp 
committee. Oh yeah, this is excellent. You know, versus the conversations that I can have with people and said, yeah, who are they? I don't even know. You know, um, so most definitely. I mean, this, this and actually, while I was doing this research, I was consult. This was before I joined the board of the Lobby Fund of Haiti. Uh, but I consult, I've been aware of the Lobby Fund of Haiti because uh, since my first visit to Haiti in 2001, I was. Um, so I asked the field workers, how do you assess the organizations that are asking Lobby Fund for money? And they said, you know, don't let the leaders speak. Ask other people questions. Make sure you get marginalized people like women, like elderly, like uh, people that may have some visible disabilities. But don't let the leader say anything. You just have one-on-one conversations. And if you're getting different stories, then that's a, that's a red flag. The other, the other method is that, you know, uh, Lobby Fund does not give money to any organization that cannot succeed at doing their own project with their own resources. Because mm-hmm. if you're just dependent on NGO aid, you're just creating this, this dependency from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So I consulted with the lobby fund to have my evaluation tools. This is in 2010, even before the, 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 the larger research, I mean, the more in-depth research. But so I, I had some indicators early on. And so that, that those were how I got to those kind of questions. Yeah. The on the ground ethnography is really fascinating. The way that you take us through the formation of these different and the dynamics in the different camps and the ways that that plays out. So, um, I know that this book is not uh, centered on on NGOs. It's not focused on NGOs, but NGOs are part of the story. Obviously, you can't really get mm-hmm. around that. And um, one of the things that you point out that's really true is that, A, it's really hard to, to say what an NGO is because mm-hmm. an NGO is defined by its negative non-governmental status, right? And B, that there's lots of different kinds of NGOs in terms of size, in terms of intention, in terms of where they're formed, um, all of those kinds of things. So how, so if we can step, step back and say, how do you define an NGO? What's your, what's your definition? And then, you know, this is a pretty scathing critique, but is there, um, some way to think about some NGOs as being better than others? Are they all, uh, Mm -hmm. bad idea? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm increasingly less and less comfortable with defining NGOs as a noun, as a thing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of NGOs as a verb, as a set of actions, what they do, uh, what set of relationships that they build. So in Haiti, groups de- vehemently def- de- de- deny that they are NGOs and the most harshest critics of NGOs, but they do things like write reports, like um, create projects that, um, you know, so um, NGOs is as, so NGOing, so either do-gooding or activisting is the thing that we need to be looking for. So collective action that is structured, that is, that institutionalizes things. So as so, so, the, so social movements the word social movements is that they're going to move. So they, 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 that is their job. Um, move people, move, move decisions, move things, uh, uh, move activism, move conversations uh, and move themselves. Like movements can go away and that's okay. That's a movement. An N- so an NGO institutionalizes their, their claims. Make it. I did a, did a workshop at a conference on NGOs last November that we, 15 brilliant people in the room, like, okay, what do all NGOs do? 
And, and so we had a hard time and we, we ended up coming up with a few. Um, so institutionalized claims making, um, and really specific sets of uh, accounting, um, representation. Uh, so these are the things that NGOs do. And so as a noun, yeah, okay, you could talk about big and small, international, local, grassroots or top-down. All of these are important distinctions, but what do they do? You know, so that, that, that to me is more important, the lasting impacts. So what I'm studying now is the long-term impacts because both critics and defenders of NGOs make all kinds of assumptions of our long-term abilities to make lasting social change, either good, quote-unquote, or bad. Um, you know, as I have a documentary video that's right, published right before the earthquake, so it was a very um, used tool at, after the earthquake to raise funds for groups like Partners in Health, etc., and local mission groups. So I was, I personally screened it and I got, I always predict that people are going to ask me a question, you know, is, I understand your critique of NGOs, but is what I'm doing okay? Are are we a good NGO? Is this a good NGO? I mean, that whole evaluation in black and white moral terms, uh, I get it. I I totally do. Um, But my, you know, the response is more complicated, you know, um, there's a really great collection of articles that um, feminist scholars Victoria Bernal and Paul Graywell published in 2014, um, uh, theorizing NGOs. Um, and so they, they're grappling with this whole issue of like re, re um, claiming NGO as a, as a, you know, from the critique of the NGOization from within feminist uh, theory. Um, so, I mean, some of this is a, you know, it, it is almost as if, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Wizard of Oz, um, Glenda first makes her appearance uh, after Dorothy's house lands on the Witch of the East, and the first word out of the, Glenda's mouth is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? You know, and, and her response was, I'm not a witch at all. I mean, so that's a lot of what you could ask. Are you a good NGO or a bad NGO? And the re- reflex is, I'm not an NGO at all. So what do people have in there? So when they're criticizing NGOs, what are they thinking of? Um, so let's document that. But the the complexities of human action, the, it, it, I don't know how uh, the word assemblage from Deleuze and Qatari, um, it, that those are useful ways to think through. Um, these are assemblages of people that have, that may have completely different ambitions. They have completely different ideologies and maybe using the NGO for different purposes. So there's not one NGO at all. Um, it, it breaks down when you look at it ethnographically. So, But you can document the actions. So that's where I've been leaning in my definition. So yeah, I am critical, um, and I have to be. Um, has the, the impacts of the aid, um, you know, it's not only where did the money go, but what did it do? You know, so it did a lot of damage, and that damage may not be permanent. It may not be longer lasting than the NGO themselves. But you know, th- those are those are questions that demand answers. And you admirably refuse to give us easy answers. I think that's an important point in your book is that there aren't really easy answers. And you know, you actually turn that onto yourself. You redirect the gaze at at some points onto your own position as a foreigner. You talked about a little bit about this earlier, 
but I, I wonder if you could um, reflect on it a little bit more and, you know, lots of, you have lots of moments in the book when someone arrives at a camp and the response is, Oh, you're just going to ask some more questions and then go away and never come back. And why should I even bother? Right. Um, So how do you, how did you, and do you deal with that discomfort? How do you reconcile it in the book? Or, I mean, maybe you don't need to reconcile it. Maybe just need to leave it there as something that exists. Yeah. um, Anthropology, we went through a self critique in the, in the eighties, the feminists, critique the critique and so one of the responses was reflexivity Ruth Bayar, um Gina Ulises professor was to say just you know it, like this whole in standpoint theory and feminist theory there is no objective truth what there is is standpoints and, and to be explicit and honest about it is the is the goal uh to be neutral is to be complicit um so uh, some folks particularly younger white men think of this as, oh, I get to talk about my, my little adventure story. You know, the, the Clifford Geertz is running away from the cops in the, the, the Balinese cockfight story, which is, okay, fine, interesting, but it doesn't reveal the research, doesn't reveal the processes, it doesn't undo the kind of positivistic fictions of uh, this is what Haitian culture is, this is what you know, Dominican family structure is. This is what Rwandan religious ritual is. Uh, that was the old school anthropology texts um, where, you know, these are fictions uh, in, you know, uh, crap and sonorous terms, and that's fine. But the discomfort that I was experiencing doesn't go away. It shouldn't go away. It is anyone who wants to do this kind of work has to interrogate why we want to do this kind of work. What kind of motivations do I have? Um, and what am I getting out of this? You know, um, and, you know, unfortunately, the, the world system is as it is. You know, I, I was launching this book um, at the Haitian American Museum of Chicago, and someone just said, thank you for your work. I said, why are you thanking me? You know, like, you should be asking, why is it that a, that a foreigner is the one that has to be validating Haitian people's experience. Why, 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 why can't Haitian people do that on their own? Why does it require me to document this and, and to justify and to give voice and to say this is a valid perspective? Because um, the world system is that it is, the inequalities that I still benefit from, even if I choose not to ignore. If I choose to ignore that, my U.S. passport gets me out of danger. My, you know, U.S., government is keeping people out of this country. Uh, my U.S. government is sustaining this middle-class consumption lifestyle that is killing the planet while making other people not able to do that through specific policies and specific uh, ways that the, the, you know, debt, we call it structural adjustment yesterday, today it's called, you know, other things like development policy loans, but you know, I benefit from this system. You know, my parents moved to the suburbs to avoid living in the city because I, I, I saw that I could have a good education. That was racist. I benefit from racism. We need to interrogate that. Um, I can pretend it doesn't exist. You know, I could just sort of say, okay, I'm just doing good. Or and then it would be part of the problem. So in the book, I hope that some of my non-anthropology colleagues will forgive the... A sociologist, one person in particular said, you talk about yourself too much, Mark. You know, and I'm like, well, maybe I do. 
Um, and if so, if I tried to keep the focus on Haiti. I also tried to keep my perspective there so that people could challenge me and say, I think something else. And so I'm just giving you all the details I think is necessary for you to evaluate what I'm saying. So I was going to ask you if you're arguing for the kind of curbing of the humanitarian impulse, right? Because I think it's pretty inevitable. We see something like the news of that earthquake or even the more recent one in Ecuador or anything Right. Um, and the impulse is, oh, I'm going to, you know, get online, give 10 bucks, 20 bucks, yeah. whatever I can. Right. Everybody says it helps. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering, I was going to ask you if we should just curb that impulse. But now I'm thinking I should ask you if we should go ahead with that, but in a much more thoughtful and reflective manner. Right. right. <sighs> if we felt the death of children for lack of water, sanitation, or food in Lesotho or Bangladesh, if we felt climate change in the, the forced destruction of communities in Alaska and Tuvalu, if we felt that in our gut that this is a part of the problem and that we as a species, we as humanity need to respond because it's a crisis, if we felt that, you know, um, President Johnston um, declared a war on poverty in order to marshal that public opinion that this is going to be a problem for U.S. society. Um, definitely worth critical, you know, worth a critical review as to how well that was waged, um, and definitely wasn't successful in in many ways. Um, but you know, the, the attempt to call it a war on poverty suggests that there is something about the photo op, the, you know, which is justifying the humanitarian impulse, the disaster narrative, uh, the book chapter that I wrote since writing this book talks about theorizing a disaster narrative. Haiti's earthquake was uh, like Benedict Anderson's global imagined commu- community, that this was, you know, fashioning us as a global humanitarian subject, as a global humanitarian community. And that is good. That, I mean, that is precious. That, that, those moments of human solidarity, I think, are worth doing. But do we feel the same sense of impact? You know, when, when there was terrorist uh, attacks in Paris and then Brussels, and they killed X number of people, and then the same week in Pakistan, twice as many people died that nobody cares about mm-hmm. because they're brown or subjugated or colonized people. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So it does require, unfortunately, something like a disaster narrative to get us to be generous. And so we need to respond in the, when there are, you know, in the Haitian terms, conjunctural crises. But we also need to feel that same level of urgency about climate change, about poverty, about structural racism, about environmental racism, etc. Um, and until we can do that as, as, a, as a species, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to be stuck with this humanitarian impulse. So how do we do it responsibly? That's what I'm trying to get at. And maybe that didn't come through in the book. I think so. I'm, I'm actually one of the, as we get towards the end of the interview, I, I want to ask you about getting back to Haiti, sort of um, it's not a book that leaves people entirely without hope, right? There are a few hopeful things that you talk about in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you can just mention a couple of those. 
Right, right. That was a choice as an author as well, because uh, I was trying to document Haitian people's analysis and Haitian people's successes whenever possible. And I know I'm going to be criticized for not going far enough. In my first book, lots of colleagues in Haiti think that I'm an, a reformist. I'm not radical enough because I, you know, don't tell, I don't say Indios all have to go tomorrow. And in fact, this was repeated a few weeks ago at the Haitian American Museum where, where people really do feel like, okay, the, the solution is NGOs all go tomorrow, you know? Um, so uh, why did I choose this? Uh, so the, the, so there is hope. There is, I, I chose to say, well, what do we, what do Haitian people learn? What are the, what are the, what, are the, what was the import of the solidarity? What lessons do, does humanity or should humanity have taken from way from this experience? And so there are some, and you know, there's some specific suggestions on how to improve uh, humanitarian to rip humanitarianism from empire you know, to make humanitarian so there's always been a debate uh, humanitarian to development continuum and so you know you've got to have humanitarian inter, um, interventions in the development framework because um, Haiti was quote unquote stunted in the, in the relief phase that's because of racism and it, you know there, you have to think in terms of uh, the context, if, if the government didn't have the capacity, well, then give it the capacity. Um, so those are specific suggestions. You know, uh, humanitarian aid was about life-saving. Um, assistance is way more expensive because logistics are more expensive. So contract that out. There's, there's some specific suggestions. Um, uh, also, some success stories in Haiti, like in Gracie, where uh, humani- humanitarian agencies have to negotiate with the local NGO. And the NGO became an NGO officially in the process in order to create jobs, to create a factory, to do that kind of uh, uh, scale up of that work. Um, but because they have an organic relationship with the population, and because they've been there for 30 years, because they know the field, because they know have a relationship with the people, they know what to defend. And most humanitarian agencies were not used to working with them as locals, but so so the, so the conclusion ends with this with this experience. And, and I use his real name, Shanija Baptiste, because the group Itika, uh, their their experience is so singular that I couldn't have talked about it without naming them. So I figured, why not name him? And he said he's okay with it. So those experiences about uh, success stories are uh, important. Uh, and the very end quote, you know, was saying. You know, we need to take stock and do better next time. That's that's not saying, you know, humanitarianism should should go away. It's actually a, a real humanitarianism would require something like an anthropological imagination with radical empathy that we are all people. If you look again differently at the struggles like Black Lives Matter, you'll see that some of these are the same struggles. That you know, who gets to be considered human? Whose humanity matters? Whose lives matter? And these are, you know, these. These specific nodes of connections of solidarity, I think, are hopeful. So we've taken up a lot of your time and you've given us a lot to think about. And one final question, which is what's next for you? What are you working on? Uh, I uh, just launched a website, Anthropolitics. I'm starting to feel what it's like to be tendered so I can be a citizen again and not just... uh, (laughs) Not afraid to, to write what I think. Um, so that's activist, you know. So do the Margaret Mead thing of taking what I learned from the field back home, uh, but also be more specifically engaged citizen. Um, and I, when I say the word citizen, it means 
can mean bad things too, like exclusion. In, in certainly the United States, when we're talking about the wall, and in Europe now with the crisis of you know the Syrian refugees, but citizen in, in the more in the more engaged sense, you know that. Um, but my scholarship, so um, I have a, a five-year grant to study the long-term impacts of, of humanitarian aid, of NGO aid. Um, so there's eight field sites. I'm going to take eight stu- graduate students from the United States, pair them with eight graduate students in all across the south of Haiti. Half the field sites had NGOs before the earthquake, half did not. Half of them were impacted by the earthquake, half would not. So it's, a, it's another structured, you know, what we call purpose of sample so five years of data collection, very, very big, very complicated logistically research, and I'm kind of nervous about it. But hopefully they'll get some answers about, you know, what power do NGOs actually have. And so theoretically there's some projects I'm finishing up. I am trying to document and theorize the humanitarian impulse, but I'm also calling, you know, talking about anthropolitics, the, the radical empathy, you know, the, the politics of the people power, what it means to be human, and I'm trying to sharpen what I mean by anthropological imagination. So these are theoretical projects while do while the big data is being collected. Those sound like fantastic projects. Always Thank fun. You. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman and I hope you can join me next time.